man. <laughs> I still love that <laughs> man. <laughs> Such a great cartoon. Hello and welcome to Filling in the Gaps. I'm Justin. I'm Darren. Here on Filling in the Gaps, we discuss puzzle games and puzzling movies, of which today we're going to be discussing a movie called Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. Yeah. Which I don't feel it needs that second part of the title, and I don't know anybody who refers to it as such. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's directed by Alejandro G. Iñárritu, written also by Iñárritu and a couple others, Nicholas... Gia Cabon and Alexander. Wow, my handwriting is really <laughs> getting bad these days. Uh, I think Dina Loris. I know Inuritu more from Amoris Peros and 21 Grams. I did enjoy those movies. They have some issues, but overall, I really enjoyed them. Birdman, not so much. And I wanted to give it another shot to see if maybe my opinion was wrong. I mean, after all, IMDb has it at 7.7, Rotten Tomato, the audience at 78%, the critics at 91%. Pretty high on both sides then. Yeah, it's a two-hour movie from 2014, and boy, I want to like it. And there are good things in it, there are good performances, but as a whole, Birdman is just not for me. And I kind of want to discuss it to see if your opinion has changed, because when we discussed this movie before, you seemed to like it a lot. Yeah. I just don't. And I'm. this is one of those times where I kind of just want to figure it out myself. Like, why Why is it that you like this so much? Mm. And perhaps is there a theory that you can give it that I haven't seen or don't understand or I don't have so. missed? Personally, I feel like a lot of people add meaning to this that is either not there or it's just so obvious that it's, it's not worth discussing. Yeah, I I watched this when it came out, and I I really I really liked it because I didn't really think about it. You know, I just I just let the movie kind of just wash over me as I usually do, and just accept it for what it is. And I yeah, I came I came away from this film thinking, yeah, that was really good. I still think it's good. I still think the performances, like you said, some of the performances are amazing. But this time around, I was like, there's so much of this that's unnecessary. That was my big thing where I was just like. Do we really need a shot of you walk, like looking down a hall for three minutes of nothing? Like, there's nothing there. Like, I get it. It's like, oh, it was all shot in one take. It's like, well, but it wasn't. There's a lot of camera trickery and stuff. So it's yeah. like, it's meant to look like it's all one take. Yeah. So it's like, it's it's not it's not the opening to Goodfellas. The camera will always pan to something else. It's pan to some static object, basically. It's like even a five year old could edit that. <laughs> But I think that that's part of it, that it's never stopping. It's constantly moving. The time of the movie, like it rushes through because outside of maybe that hallway, most of the time, and even that hallway, you can hear things going on. So there's not a lot of downtime, which is part of actually what bothers me about the movie is the pacing. It's just a nonstop in my face. A lot of not noise like a superhero movie, but just so much talking Mm. and just constantly i feel tired after watching a movie like birdman well i I like it for that though i think that's that's one of the things that i do like about it is like it is kind of relentless and it doesn't stop and you feel like you're there and that's that's what the whole continuous shot i guess is supposed to be for and also to be you're kind of like a fly on the wall kind of thing watching these people uh yeah I, i like that but there's just some really unnecessary parts and it's 
It's not a short film either. No, but at two hours, it's I, I think it's within its rights to play mm. around with time a little bit. When it gets to above two hours, that's when I really start to say, yeah, you, you definitely could have edited that down. Yeah. There's not a lot here where, like I said, there's not a lot of dead time. So it's another movie where I'm not sure that I would say, oh, I'd really cut out a lot because what little slow time I get in this movie, I kind of desperately need. I kind of feel like I need more of it. Really powerhouse cast. You have Michael Keaton, Galifianakis, Edward Norton, Emma Stone, Naomi Watts. It's <laughs> it's full of faces and people you recognize. And I think that that's a big part of why it is what it is. I think Michael Keaton is the, the big draw here for a number of reasons, which we'll get into when we get into the spoiler section. I don't think that the movie works without him, specifically him. And I think that that's very important. But again, we will get into that in the spoiler section. I would recommend it to people to give it a try. It definitely has a unique style and feel to it. It is definitely an original feeling movie. It takes elements of other movies, but does some different things with them. It's decently made, but for me, there's just a lot of things about it I do not like. And I, the second time, found that I liked it even less than I liked it the first time. So it'll be interesting to see how you react to, to, to my vibe, whether you get corrupted by it or whether you start to kind of push even more for how, <laughs> how good the movie is, you think. But I would recommend it as a give it a try, hesitantly, because personally, I don't like it, but many people do. Do you kind of wholeheartedly recommend it? I would recommend it to people that like films with lots of dialogue, like Mammoth films. I'm a big fan of David Mammoth's kind of Glengarry, Glen Ross, and uh, Red Belt and stuff. I like, I like a lot of his films. If you're into movies with lots of dialogue, then this is a good film. Just beware. There are some really loud drums. Yeah, it. I don't know if that was just my like setup, like, but the music volume seems to be twice the the, the dialogue volume. So go into this knowing that you may not want to watch with headphones, as I did. I think that made it <laughs> <laughs> way more intense than probably needed to yeah, be. Yeah, I watched this after everyone was in bed, and I was just constantly had my hand on the volume knob on my amplifier there, just like turning it down every time the music came on. With that, though, I think it's time that we get into the spoiler section. So if you have not seen it or you do not care about spoilers, well, you can join us. But for the rest of you, go watch it and then come back and join us. Here it is, your spoiler warning. The movie starts with a bunch of chatter. Drums start, letters appear on the drum beats. Mm -hmm. Words appear. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, question mark. I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved. To feel myself beloved on the earth. Raymond Carver, late fragment. Which I believe is the play that they're putting on. Is yeah. an adaptation of... Is it late fragment? No, no, it's called Let's Talk About Love or something like that. Yeah, I've got it in my notes somewhere, but I, I don't remember. Yeah, it's not, it's, not, it's not a late fragment, no. I think you only get it sort of once on the marquee. Mm -hmm. I think it's called Let's Talk About Love or something like that, yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. But it is another Raymond Carver. Yes, it is. Yeah. But I am personally not really familiar with Raymond Carver, so I don't know if this is a good adaptation. Birdman does not make me want to go read Raymond Carver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Raymond. I'm sure you didn't find without me, though. <laughs> Letters disappear as Birdman appears, and the sort of last letters to leave are Amor, which is mm -hmm. love. 
We have a flash of a dead jellyfish on the beach. We cut to a meteor burning in the atmosphere. And then we cut to Riggin, the character played by Michael Keaton, floating in front of a window of a tiny apartment. And his gravelly inner voice asks, How did we get here? This place is horrible. And is constantly the negative side of Riggin's mind. It's his dark inner voice. Do you think he's floating at this point? So this is basically the whole film then. (laughs) I mean, kind of. That's the thing of, I'll probably be pointing it out multiple times. The big thing is, does he have these powers? Because the ending makes us, at least that's what led me to believe that he did, but we didn't actually get to see it. We don't know what's going on. We've got these moments where he seems to lose control and he seems to use his mind with telekinesis. But then... We'll see him as somebody else enters the room actually physically picking up stuff and destroying it. So I think that does lead into the big question. Do you want to handle it now or do you want to handle it at the end? If I've got to get off the fence, I'll say yes, he does have powers. Okay. Just because of the ending. Like because of the way that Emma Stone looks at the sky. Okay. That's fine. I think that that's what's implied. Certainly with the ending. That's my take. I do... (laughs) I get the Birdman can probably hover and stuff. I didn't get that Birdman had telekinesis, but quite often <laughs> he seems to. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, telekine- I mean, maybe, you know, man isn't, doesn't have real wings, so we can't really fly. So maybe when superheroes fly, they're actually just telekinesising their own bodies around, you know? <laughs> maybe, you know? Well, it depends on each character and their theory and how the writers write them, I suppose. It becomes very muddied, and I think it's muddied on purpose, and I don't really like that. It is, yeah, it is. Especially with the trash in the room part where it's like he's using his powers, but then the guy comes in and it's like it's him physically picking things up and throwing them around. But no, I think I think he does have powers. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna yeah, just throw it out there. That's I'm on I'm on that side of the fence. Okay. But he is floating in front of a window in a tiny apartment. His thoughts are interrupted by a Skype call. His daughter, Sam, played by Emma Stone, wants to know what flowers he wanted. He's like, anything but roses. Mm. And, of course, later we're going to see that that's the things that she brings. She's incredibly unhappy and will be through most of the movie. We're going to see... <laughs> well, actually, it's not It's not an apartment, is it? It's his uh, it's dressing room. Dressing room, yeah. Yeah, because there's the signed Birdman 3 poster that the crew put up that he hates. Mm-hmm. By the way, I wanted to ask you this just because this was one of the first things that I wrote down when I was watching this. You know, he's he's got that Batman kind of growl to his voice. When did that evolve? Because it certainly wasn't with Adam West. <laughs> when did this Batman voice appear? What Was it Michael Keaton that did it in the Tim Burton version? He did a slightly different one, but Nolan's is definitely much more pronounced. Right. Just with, like the evolution of the Batman growl. Like, Chris, like, Christian Bale is the one who took it to a whole different level. Right. And so maybe they're playing on that. I think he did use a slightly kind of lower, different voice, but it wasn't nearly the difference that Bale put on it in the Nolan films. Mm. I think as well though here, I'm not sure if they're really playing on that Mm. as just the fact that it's his inner dark voice. Right. And that maybe that's the way Keaton felt that the voice should be, or maybe uh, the director thought that as well. It works for me here. I don't mind it. I think it's good to have slightly different. I think if he was just using his regular voice, it'd be quite confusing because most of the time we don't see Birdman when we're hearing the voice. Right. But I will say 
since you brought that up. I think the biggest thing about Birdman, the reason why it works, is because it's Michael Keaton who's playing mm. this main character who had, I don't know if I really want to say a slump, but he probably wasn't getting the roles that he wanted for a while. Birdman was part of him coming back and coming back in a big way. And I love it for that because he's been able to do some great stuff since. And it all deals with talking about you had the keys to the castle, you gave that away. You paved the way with sort of the Tim Burton Batmans so that the Marvel movies could flourish. Mm Mm-hmm. And you gave that up and let other people take that role. Right. No, goodness. I would, <laughs> given the way that the Batman movies went once they left in Burton's hands, I wouldn't really feel too bad about missing out on, say, Batman Forever or Batman and Robin. Batman and Robin, yeah. <laughs> but I could see it as being this feeling of, yeah, I did superhero movies when they weren't a thing, when we really had to... Oh, yeah. Try hard to make that happen. And also to make it so it wasn't absolutely terrible. There are so many that are really terrible. I mean, the original Captain America movie is pretty well panned. There was the Fantastic Four movie that just never was released because it was so bad. Well, even the one that got released was terrible. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> and I think that that's the thing. I think they were using that fact and that adds so much more. And those of us that were fans of Keaton from... Like the 90s. Yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Because he was in everything. He's well, like, actually, mid-80s, he was in everything. Yeah. And then, yeah, we didn't really get to see him doing anything big for a while. And Birdman feels to me like it was the first big thing in a while. And then sort of on the the tail of that, then he was getting like the founder and he was getting... He was a was he Vulture in Spider-Man film. Yeah, so that came up as well. So that kind of plays even more. That was later, but oh yeah. He, so he did go back to that then. Yeah, he did get back into the superhero stuff. Yeah. Well, and then as we're probably going to release this roughly around the same time, uh, the new Flash movie, I believe he's putting the cowl back on. So mm-hmm. that adds sort of even more to him and, and what this movie sort of means. That'd be quite cool though to do like the, because I know DC has like the old Batman, like co- comic book. He'd be great because it's like he was the original and then to bring him back as like the old 60-year-old Batman would be fantastic. Yes. I would like to see Full that. Full circle. Yeah. yeah. So it adds a whole lot to it. But I think that that's a big part of why fans of Keaton love this. One, loving to see him, but mm. also Birdman is like talking about Batman. Mm. And I get it. But for me, that wears a little thin. Mm-hmm. Just because I want to look at the movie for the movie itself. It's fun to add in all this extra meaning, but the movie itself, not as interesting. His performance, great. Yeah, he is. <laughs> I mean, I've forgotten how good he is as an actor. Like, he's, he's a really good actor. Before we leave this scene, we're going to get right away the symbol of him looking in the mirror and this sort of duality of self that mm. he is going to be experiencing. We've already had the voice we're now getting sort of the physical representation of that as well. And it's not just that, but also Birdman becomes his, or has become his inner voice. So it's become a part of him. So you have Birdman who would have had like an identity and a second identity. You've got the actor who he is on stage versus who he is behind the scenes. And also 
who he is with different people. His ex-wife, he is a very different person than he is with some of the other actors, for example. Right. So there's all sorts of duality and crisis of identity that he's experiencing throughout the whole thing. And we're getting it here. And I think that this opening is quite good. Yeah. It raises a lot of questions and hints to here's stuff that we are going to be seeing. There's a red light that goes on, call to stage, they're ready for you. Rigging grabs his script, he dresses quickly because he'd been floating in his underwear, so he throws some clothes on. He heads down the hall and gets the name of one of the staff guys wrong. <laughs> I forget what it was like, good job, Steve, my name's Dave, you know, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> We're going to be spinning around a table as this table read, this sort of rehearsal is going on. Riggin has already said he's annoyed with Ralph's air quotes acting because he thinks that he's just overdoing it. But that's not going to be much of an issue because Ralph's going to get hit on the head as he's asking for notes. One of the stage lights falls on his head, which took me totally by surprise the first time. And I had forgot about this time. I knew he gets, <laughs> I knew he would be removed, but I forgot how. Right. <laughs> to Regan, this is a good thing because now he can get a better actor. And he actually says here, oh, I, I made that happen. Yeah. As though he thought he did it with his mind. There's a joke about actors being busy, even Jeremy Renner. What, they put him in a cape too? <laughs> <laughs> Riggin says, so this is to Jake, who's played by Zach Galifianakis. You're the tuner, you're the producer, my best friend. Just make this problem go away. Because they're going to be sued because he's <laughs> been crushed by this light. <laughs> yeah. Alone in the room. He's going to turn off the news that's talking about Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man's success. So, yeah, again, <laughs> hitting it home. Yeah. If you didn't know, that's what he was sort of annoyed by. Well, now you do. I kind of wonder why they didn't just go with Birdman 2 instead of Birdman 3. I guess just to show that it wasn't just a, a fluke sequel, you know, that it was still very successful enough that they made the third one as well. I guess so. I guess if they, for me, if they were going to go for the Keaton as Batman, why not just go Birdman 2? Ah, right, okay. Mm. Because he didn't stick around for the third one. No. And again, I'd say... Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Who did they get for the third one? Oh, Val Kilmer. And in this one, the inner voice is going to say how other superhero success is you know, after he paved the way for them. Mm -hmm. This is where we're going to see the roses from Sam, which is, again, the one thing he didn't want. Vase gets thrown against the wall, but it appears to be with his mind. So we start off small and it escalates. His yeah. powers are going to escalate as we go through. This is one of those moments where I think because it, the vase hit the wall, we're just going to pause on the wall and then we're going to start to hear a conversation and pull back and realize time has passed. He's being interviewed by people who are asking all the wrong questions. Like, why did you leave such a good superhero franchise to do something like this? Yeah. Is it true you're injecting, was it, pig semen into your face to stop aging? He's like, no. He's like, okay, I'll just say you deny it. He's like, well, yeah. why, why would you say that? <laughs> why would you say anything at all? Yeah. <laughs> There's another reporter who I think is... Japanese, and they're yeah, they honestly just, trying they just, they to just ask hear these Birdman 4, and he's like, Oh, Birdman 4! <laughs> <laughs> and because of this, Jake ends the interviews. Annoyed, Riggin just wants to get rid of the Birdman poster. Jake's like, You shouldn't do that. The crew gave you that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they meant it as a gesture, they didn't mean it as an insult, like you're taking it. 
Naomi Watts, who plays Leslie, is going to enter and say, Mike is available. So this is Mike Shiner, played by Edward Norton. Jake is really happy about this. We're going to follow Jake, and we're going to see the stage lights go on. Mike is now on stage, ready to work, starts rehearsing with Riggin. Mike already knows the lines. Riggin is really impressed. And <laughs> Mike keeps saying, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. It's just a thing I can do. It's just a thing I can do. Kind of joking around, because then he goes... I've been helping Leslie get off book for months. Of course I know the lines. <laughs> this is a part where I just find the rotating camera to be a bit much. So I was just going to rotate around them and around and around them. But Mike makes some suggestion to cut lines to make it more efficient. And it actually goes well. They both seem happy with the way this has begun. Mm-hmm. Sam enters. She is now going to take Mike to his fitting. She says that he was good in a play that she saw. He comments on the part of her body being nice. She gets annoyed. She stays and watches as he dresses for his fitting. But he has no underwear, so he just is naked. Mm. <laughs> she uses his own line back against him because he said, Hey, don't be so sensitive. This is the stage or this is the theater. And so she says the same thing to him. And he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. And just takes off his clothes. Leslie enters, apologizes for Mike, talks badly about Sam, not realizing, Oh, yeah, Sam's right there. <laughs> Sam leaves. Leslie begs Mike not to mess this up for her because this is Broadway. This is the thing that she's wanted her whole life. The dresser leaves. There's an argument with Jake and Riggin about money issues. Always money issues. <laughs> and Jake is desperate to make this work. Riggin says, don't worry, I'll get the money. A woman enters, tells Riggin that she's missed her last two periods. They hug. We find out like this is his girlfriend. But, for, for now. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't really played that much of a role in the movie i don't really get that much from her except that she's upset about him all the time mm. so we've never part of the problem with their relationship is we never saw any of the good stuff it started off bad and is bad throughout kind of the rest of the movie yeah <laughs> the camera is going to go along toward the stage we're now into preview there's multiple shows previews people getting in at a discount to see them basically rehearse yeah the audience laughs at the scene. This is a good thing. Brigham gets to his monologue in the spotlight. He's speaking to the audience. The camera rotates around him again. But Mike ruins the scene. He's mad that gin was replaced with water. I need real gin on set. That's what I know. So they fight about it. The audience then immediately starts booing and jeering. Mike condescends the audience. Don't be so pathetic. Stopping at looking at the world through your cell phone screens. <laughs> I don't think anybody's doing that <laughs> in the theater, but okay. He slams the refrigerator door. The cabinet is going to fall. The audience is going to laugh more. Regan storms off, and now he wants my con. So we go over him immediately. <laughs> I love him, too. He's the worst thing ever. Yeah. But that was a pretty intense scene. Mm-hmm. Like I will, I will give him that. Jake says no. The advance money has doubled since Mike has been added to the cast. He brings support. There'd be no money otherwise. And as we're going to hear many times throughout this movie, the preview doesn't matter. Only that one critic, the bat from the New York Times, matters. And she doesn't like Keaton. (laughs) Yeah, she doesn't like Regan at all. No, not one bit. Alone, Mike slams into Regan and says, hey, you're really good. So there's this whole weird dynamic with Mike as well of who he is on stage, who he is backstage and also who he is he's he's very much two-faced in multiple scenes we have 
Right. But he says later on, and I thought that was really interesting how he says, my real person is the person that I'm at on stage. So when he's off stage, that's when he's being two-faced and he's not being genuine, but who he is, he is that person. Like I, I like that about his character. In the dressing room, Riggins' ex is there. This is where we find out Sam has been in rehab. She says, you don't have to be a great father, just be one. <laughs> <laughs> Riggins' girlfriend enters and leaves quickly. The ex says something about going back to teaching... Reagan wants to refinance the Malibu house because he needs money for this production. It was supposed to be Sam's house, so the ex is not very happy about that. Reagan starts to tell this whole story about a plane ride with Clooney. So again, choosing <laughs> Clooney seems a very specific pick there. Another Batman. Mm. They both nearly died in the plane, but Clooney was the one who's on the front page. And did you know that Farrah Fawcett and Michael Jackson died on the same day? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> I think it's to say that more famous people overshadow others. Yeah. He says, yeah, why did we break up again? And she says, well, because you threw a knife at me. <laughs> <laughs> and then an hour later, you were saying how much you loved me. Mm. Kind of thing of like, one, she felt in danger, and two, she didn't know who he was from hour to hour. Yeah. She also says he confuses love for admiration. And says, do what you want with the Malibu house. The inner voice here says that, oh, we should have done that reality show about your family. Which probably would have been like the Osbournes. Right. He's going to leave the dressing room and be told that Mike just ordered a sunbed. Because if he's going to be a redneck, he needs to have a redneck. <laughs> I guess makeup isn't good enough. No, it's going to be real. Yeah, but not real go hang out in the sun. Yeah. Nice sunbed in his dressing room. Mm. Outside. Regan and Mike are going to walk down the street. Mike is really just insulting to Hollywood. I think Regan said, let's get coffee. And Mike leads him into a bar and says, oh, they've got coffee here. But of course, neither of them drink coffee. They drink and argue about the importance of previews. At the bar is Tabitha Dickinson or Dickerson. Mm -hmm. But she's basically the New York Times reviewer that all of Broadway relies on their uh, opinion i guess it's yes yeah. she's like she makes critic. she makes or breaks them yeah. yeah as mike and Regan are having their argument it's going to be interrupted by fans wanting a picture with Regan. but they're sort of they're like pseudo fans really they're like oh remember he was in that movie he they're not really they're sort of glad to get their picture with him but they sort of barely know who he is at the same time right it's like they watched Birdman once and they recognized him and that's not a great fan interaction. Mm -hmm. So it sort of supports Mike's argument as well as Reagan's argument that, well, people do notice me, mm -hmm. but also it's kind of hollow. Yeah. So it kind of hits both of those notes. And that is really well done without forcing it. This is very much a show don't tell and it works well. Yeah. Mike asks why he, Riggin chose to do a Carver adaptation. And Riggin says is this whole story about his high school performance, Carver actually was there and wrote on a napkin something about, like, you did a good job. Mm -hmm. And he's been carrying this around with him for the whole time, since high school. Yeah, Mike's going to go up to Tabitha and Saltzer. He says their performance will be good. And defends Riggin, says Riggin is risking all for this. He's doing way more. What have you ever done? <laughs> way to get on someone's good side. <laughs> he's very cocky with her. He says he's not worried. 
you can give me a bad review when I give you a bad performance. Mm. He doesn't think he will ever give a bad performance. Riggin is going to return to the theater. It's definitely quiet compared to all that drumming outside <laughs> and the talking and the people and everything. So there's definitely that, but the drums are just, yeah, like I said before, it's just too, too loud. He's going to talk to Sam. He tries to thank Sam for her work, but then he finds that she's got pot. They argue. He says that the play is important to him. Sam says it's not important. She insults him for the way he's behaving, and he doesn't take anything seriously. Like, he doesn't have a social media presence. He just sees that as being the young kid's way. He refuses to change to make things better. You can't keep doing things the same way and expecting people to love it. You have to change with the times. They're both sad after that. (laughs) <laughs> he spins the case on the table with his mind and then he starts smoking the joint but you know <laughs> burns himself because yeah. it's so small we hear a female voice talking nick doesn't want a baby we follow to the stage then as mike and leslie get ready for the bed scene he tries to have sex with her yeah for real yeah mm, yeah let's have sex on stage she fights him off the crowd laughs as mike emerges with an erection Riggin comes in and punches Mike. And then he plays this sort of jilted lover, this ex-husband. Well, not ex-husband, like the husband. And he's caught them having the affair. That's, Mm. I guess, the end of the play. Right. He says, I don't exist. And shoots himself with a pretty good-looking wig prosthetic. Mm -hmm. And he gets a good applause. We find out, because Leslie is angry... That Mike's had trouble with sex for about six months. And she's like, and now? This is this is how you want to? And like you said, he's saying, yeah, but on stage it's real. Everything is real. Yeah. But Leslie just wants Mike out of her life, which I understand. <laughs> I mean, wasn't this around the time as well where um, Ed Norton was getting a lot of bad press for being difficult to work with? It might be. But I know this leads to the dressing room where Leslie is throwing around stuff. She says, why don't I have any self-respect? Laura, Riggin's girlfriend, will come in and try to comfort her. Riggin enters and comforts her with, like, a line. <laughs> you know, one sentence. And Laura's upset not only because how easy that was after she had tried so hard, but also the fact that, I think she says, he's never talked to me that way. Mm-hmm. Mike is going to interrupt to try to talk. He gets kicked out so that we can sort of follow him. He rushes into Riggins' dressing room, complaining about the fake gun. This gun is so fake. Have some respect. And then he steps out on the roof. Mike and Sam are going to meet, talk about rehab, talk a bit about Mike's attitude, why you like this. Sam challenges him to truth or dare, which it turns sexually charged. And then we're going to pan up to the sky to see it become day. So we get the time passing. I'm going to say this probably again at the end, but let me just say this no-cut look starts to feel really gimmicky at times. And this is one of them. Mm -hmm. There are just so many times where it doesn't seem to bother me when we're going straight from person to person. But any time where we are cutting to a wall, where we're cutting to the sky, it just feels cheap and unnecessary. Yeah, it's like, I don't know how to put it into words, but it's like in other films where they do it, like like I keep on bringing up the Goodfellas scene where they're going through the restaurant and stuff like that, and and so they, they go through the restaurant and then they get to really Leota's table. That has a purpose. There's so much happening in that as well. It's like there's people talking, there's lines, there's 
just so much stuff that the screen is so busy and it, you, you're, you're thinking, wow, that would have been really hard to do all that in one take. Well done. But for this, it's just like, I get it. You know, I, I do get it because it's like, you do feel like you're a fly on the wall and stuff like that. And I, I understand its purpose, but it just, it feels at some points, it just feels like there's no purpose for it. And just they're doing it for the sake of doing it. It's like, no, no, this is the film. Uh, I'd rather it had some proper meaning to it. You know, like like what I just said, like with the whole Goodfellas thing. Yeah, you're saying it's, it feels gimmicky. Yeah, it's like, rather than be, this is a cool thing that we put in our film, it's like, this is the film. This is the film. It never stops. And there are just times where it doesn't seem to really add anything. Right. That a traditional cut could have. And there are times where oh, we have to go from this person to this person to this person. Sometimes it just feels like a bit much. That makes the pacing relentless. And yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's like, we'll pan from that, a door opens. We fought, Now, instead of walking this way down the hallway, now we're following, we're turning 180 degrees and following Ed Norton down the corridor. It also makes it very difficult for me to have a sense of time. Mm-hmm. I get the time passed, but how much time has passed? Has it been a day, an hour, a month? So this showing us night becomes day, that's a decent one because that is taking me to the next day. But some others, like even that first one where we went from the vase being smashed on the wall to the interviews, mm-hmm. was that a couple hours? Was that the next day? Was that a week later? We don't know. Yeah, and then there's the part where with Emma Stone and Ed Norton are on the kind of, I don't know what, it's not the balcony, it's like the, the catwalk. The catwalk above the stage, and, you know, they're making out up there, and then. We pan down onto the stage, and it's like Ed Norton's down there on the stage. I would have, I don't know, if I had more things, if it was like, if they did this thing where it's like the line between reality and the stage got blurred more and more as as we went through it, it's like we started seeing these weird time occurrences where things were getting out of sync and stuff like that. And that was maybe something to do with Michael Keaton's brain getting more and more deranged as the movie went onwards, leading up to maybe an accident at the end. It's like, that would be cool. I think, though, to do that, you would have to focus only on Reagan, whereas we follow every character. Yeah. And I think that that does kind of hinder things as well. I think, personally, I would have preferred it if we just focused on Reagan. Mm -hmm. Because then there are times, like, with the whole Sam and Mike thing, I honestly don't care about it. I don't care about that either. That was a really awkward thing. A, it was awkward to watch because it didn't seem like it was right. It didn't seem like they had any chemistry together and just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I just could have done without it, to be honest. It didn't, it didn't serve any purpose in the film either, did it really? Am I missing something? I, I think it gives another reason to be mad at Mike, but I don't really We're get already mad enough it. with him anyway. Yeah. <laughs> He's done so many things. And in fact, that leads into what happens next, where Laura throws the paper on Riggins' lap and we find out that Mike stole the story about Carver. He used Reagan's story in the paper. Yeah. And that got him on the front page of the arts section or whatever it is. Yeah. Which Reagan takes very seriously, but everybody else is like, it's it's the front page of the arts section. It's not like the front page of the paper. Right. But he gets really upset about this. Mm. And this is where they go and they have their really stupid fight. <laughs> I like this fight though. It's just it's so ridiculous. But it's so funny. Yeah, Michael Keaton wrestling a naked Edward Nor- Norton in his wife fronts. <laughs> it's just hilarious. I liked it. This is where, too, like they're just insulting each other. <laughs> Regan hitting him with the paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Rolled up, yeah, like a, like a, like a dog. Just yeah. Like, 
But then, yeah, Keaton turns around and like flips it on and like telling this sob story about his dad beating them when he was a kid and stuff like that. And Edward Norton believes him and he's like, ah, see, I can't act. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun moment. That was great. Yeah. The fight looks stupid, but that's the point. Yeah. And so I can give them that one. It is the type of thing, though, where it's like, yeah, Mike, put on some pants or something before you walk down the hallway. <laughs> In the dressing room. The inner voice is going to chastise Riggin for being pathetic. He's going to mentally throw his makeup kit. This is again where he's... We've talked about this before. This is the big one where he appears to be just destroying everything with his mind. But then as soon as Jake walks in, he's physically throwing mm. stuff around. This is the big moment for that. So it puts into a lot of question yeah. what's going to be happening. Jake tells some lies here about, like, I think Scorsese's going to be coming to the show. But he is. <laughs> he was there, yeah? Was he? Yeah, I think so. There's a part when he when he comes back from his little flight and lands and we go into the cinema and then we see the people coming out. Scorsese's there with his um, assistant. Oh, okay. I didn't notice that. All right. But most of the stuff about, I think, saying, oh, we've got a sold-out show and stuff, which I, it looks sold out. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we're led to believe from the way Jake reacts to Leslie on the hallway that none of this stuff is true. Mm -hmm. So maybe it just happened. Yeah. Or maybe Reagan made it happen with his mind. Maybe. <laughs> Leslie's going to enter to check on Reagan to make sure he's okay, to apologize for bringing Mike in. But now that Reagan's been fed all of this good news, he's in a good mood. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, don't worry about that. But she's grateful because this is, like I said, her chance to be on Broadway. Yeah. She leaves sadly, though, because Riggin is so happy and saying, oh, we've got a full house. Scorsese might be coming. So, yeah, yeah, that's great. And just kind of packs out. <laughs> <laughs> Mike watches Leslie walk off. He heads to the roof to talk to Sam. Sam is angry that Riggin hit Mike. He asks what Riggin did to her. She says Riggin was never there for her. And then... He annoyed her by trying to make her feel special. Oh. But you are special. <laughs> but yeah, that's what Mike says. But it's also hard for me to feel sorry for her at this point. Mm -hmm. Oh, he wasn't there enough. Okay, I can respect that. But then he tried to make me feel special. I don't think that those words, what she's saying here, is really conveying the same message that his ex-wife said, which was the inconsistency of him and how difficult that was to live with i felt the way she put it made much more sense mm. and the way sam says it just sounds kind of privileged and spoiled it does sound spoiled and i think but i think ed norton calls her out on that doesn't he he's like oh shut up you know it's like what are you talking about you know so what that's part of this business you know or he says something to that effect doesn't mm. he yeah so he says but you are special she insults his attempt but kisses him Mike is hesitant, so she storms off and makes him choose... A dare. Yeah, and heads downstairs, and he follows. So, like you said, this is the part. They're on the catwalk. Mike says the stage is the only place where he doesn't pretend. They kiss as Regan is working on the stage below them. But then as the camera pans down, time has passed, mm -hmm. and now it's another preview. Right. Backstage, there's a costume change. Regan and Laura talk. He tries to apologize. She says, fine. I wanted to be in love, but my body won't let me. She's not pregnant. She's found out. Mm -hmm. Regan sees Mike and Sam kissing. He bums the smoke and steps outside. <laughs> sort of garbage men <laughs> collecting right outside. Yeah. The robe is caught. He's forced to 
run in his underwear back to the main area of the theater. A bunch of people see him. It's, I think, Times Square. (laughs) So they're all recording him. He walks in, and he gives a pretty good performance. He's there. In the audience. In the audience. Everybody's tried to stop him on the way in. The ushers, the (laughs) the (laughs) ticket booth. And he just pushes past. Even the actor from the beginning who got hit by the light is there with his lawyer. So I don't have time to talk to you right now. (laughs) He, He gets in. And so he's walking through the crowd, which would be a pretty powerful moment if you were there. And he's just sort of pretending to have a gun with his fingers because Mm. he doesn't have that. But as he gets up to stage, somebody hands him the gun. So he's got it and he pulls it off and it works pretty well. Yeah. We follow Jake at this point. His phone goes off. The lawyer from the lobby hangs up on him. We see this is your empty hallway Mm -hmm. where we... I think are hearing the rest of the play as it happens and just waiting for the actors to come up. Regan walks into his dressing room. Sam checks on him, asks if he's really ready for the opening. Regan actually kind of makes himself a bit vulnerable and admits that he's got many concerns. Everything I've got is writing on this. He leads up to saying that the play actually feels like a deformed form of himself. Yeah. Which again is that sort of duality, but now it's not him with another person or him with another identity. It's it's this work that he's created, but created based on somebody else's work. So take of that what you will. I suppose that's, that's kind of natural, isn't it? It's like if you're adapting a screenplay or something like that and you put yourself into it, all of your kind of flaws and, and things are going to come out and be magnified, I suppose. So it's like it kind of makes sense. But because of that, Sam opens up a little bit here as well, shows him this toilet roll with just all these little dashes on it. And says that this is something she did in rehab. You're meant to write a million of these or whatever. It's to show how insignificant you are and that your problems aren't as big as they might seem to be. She shows the underwear video, says, I I think you need to see this. I need to show this before anybody else does. And says, actually, this is power. Yeah. Because this many people have seen it. This is free promotion, really, for yeah play that you're in that you're so desperate to get people to come see she doesn't really say all of that but she says his power and i think that that is another great moment this is a pretty good moment with the father and daughter opening up and not being terrible to each other after they've been terrible to each other sort of throughout Mm -hmm. we're going to use this though to cut from the video that they're watching to the news where it happens to be talking about that video in the bar so that we can pull into one screen and out of the other. Riggan tries to talk to the reviewer, Tabitha. She promises a bad review to close his play. I am going to kill your play, just because she hates Riggan and any film actor who dares try to do stage work. Yeah, yeah. Riggan takes her writing, says all her writing is just labels, says she feels nothing and understands nothing. She leaves, again, like I said, saying she's going to kill the play. Riggan actually... He tried to show her the Carver napkin. She was not interested. He leaves it behind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's to say that he doesn't care about it anymore or if it's because he realizes nobody else cares about it. Maybe he only cared about it because he thought other people would appreciate it and like it. And since nobody else seems to care, maybe he stopped or maybe he's ready to move on. I took it as letting go of the past. But also that, yeah, the whole business of of acting, I I guess, is like, there's no point doing it if no one else cares about it. So it's kind of the same, yeah, the same deal. We have a scene here that I don't really like. 
As Reagan leaves, we're going to get the tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow speech from Macbeth. The, you know, life is a tale told by an idiot, idiot signifying nothing. Like, mm-hmm. We're going to get that. It's just a bit much. And yes, okay, I understand. <laughs> but we don't need that here. You have so many other things working here. You don't have to bring Shakespeare in here to also say, hey, there's duality in life and life is acting. We don't need it. That <laughs> You've already hit that point many times and it's just a chance to get him into a liquor store, I think. And then the guy giving the recitation on the street says, was that too much? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it was. He's going to wake up on the steps. There are these stairs and the inner voices actually tried to give a pep talk. As he's walking along, we're going to see Birdman walking behind Riggin. Mm-hmm. So there's now a physical manifestation of this Birdman. It is still just his inner voice, though. Correct? Yeah, I don't think anyone can see him. Yeah. and Or Godzilla, whatever the hell it is, up on the roof, like some metal dragon or whatever. But yeah, this, this scene gets out of, out of control quite quickly. Yes. And it leads up to Riggin looking like he's going to jump off the roof. He's pulled down by some random guy. Regan runs and jumps off the roof and flies. Yeah. The inner voice says, this is where you belong, above them all. He just wants him to sell out again, <laughs> more or less. And he's going to land and enter, but then we see a taxi driver run up and say, hey, he needs to give me money. Yeah. So, so it didn't happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Opening night, people exit during the intermission. Everybody seems positive about what's going on. The ex enters the dressing room, says it's going well, and she's actually worried about him because he seems calm. <laughs> this is not your normal state. Riggin actually opens up to her, and he tells her about this inner voice he hears, and he also talks about how he tried to drown himself. He had been cheating on her, he got caught, he went out to the sea and he tried to drown himself, but he was covered in jellyfish, and <laughs> so he struggled back to the beach at the time, he told her it was a sunburn. She said, yeah, but I, at that point, I didn't care. <laughs> and he says he still loves her, cries over the possible life that was lost. They kiss. He's called to the last scene. So he gets ready. He's doing warm-up exercises. He has a different gun, one that definitely looks much more real. Yep. He opens the door with his mind. The camera heads to the stage a lot now in first person, which is not something we've gotten too much of, except for transitions. Mm-hmm. The drummer is now backstage. He just happens to be here. Yeah, just in a little <laughs> alcove. Riggin ignores the makeup person and just walks out. Powerful acting. He fake shoots at Mike and at the crowd, and then he shoots himself. Standing ovation, pans up to the ceiling and out to the sky. We get a quick montage of Times Square and the theater and another, I think, quick cuts to like that meteor and the jellyfish Mm -hmm. from the beginning in the hospital. The ex is there. Jake enters. Tabitha, the horrible critic, actually wrote a great review. We find out that Riggin shot his nose off. So he did shoot himself, but But he missed. (laughs) Or in a superficial way, Mm. I guess. But I mean, he meant to kill himself, yeah? I don't know. Because how do you miss like that? That's the thing that, that I was confused by. It's like, how 
how do you miss that? I mean, unless it's like just by pulling the trigger, he moved the gun a fraction and then it shot off his nose. I'm pretty sure he was trying to kill himself on stage. It sure looked like that. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if they weren't playing with the idea that he did mm. and that they maybe had multiple endings right. prepared for this just in case. It seems a little weird. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's, what's that old idiom about cutting off your nose to spite, spite your, your face? face? Yeah. Maybe that has something to do with it as well. But the takeaway within the story is that I think Tabitha said something in the review about he may have created a whole new level of acting. Like people are willing to actually hurt themselves for the role. On stage, yeah. <laughs> but she wrote the great review, which is what they needed. Although where the, that, that's where the title of the thing comes in, isn't it? It's like the unexpected virtue of ignorance. I don't think that's a... I wouldn't be so happy if someone wrote that about me. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah, you're good, but you're you're stupid. <laughs> your naivete is your strength. Yeah, well done. Yeah. It's like the most passive-aggressive thing to, to say about someone. <laughs> Jake is super happy because they're making money, and this is boding well for the future. Mm-hmm. But Riggins ex is not having it. She slaps Jake and gets him out of there. Riggin, obviously, his face is covered in bandages like a cowl, mm-hmm. of which he's going to end up removing in the bathroom. But this is after they have the sweet bit of Sam entering, bringing lilacs. He can't smell, he realizes. <laughs> Probably because his nose is so swollen. Yeah. Still. She started a Twitter account for him. They hold hands. She puts her head on his chest. She leaves for something. This is where he's going to go in the bathroom, remove his bandages. Birdman is just sitting on the toilet. Yeah. I guess where Riggin feels Birdman belongs now. (laughs) He sees the birds outside, opens the window, enjoys the breeze, steps out. We hear the drums again. Sam returns to an empty room, looks out the window and sort of up and down and laughs. Yeah. Which is to give the impression that he's flying around. Yeah, because she definitely looks down, which is where you'd expect him to have splatted. And then she realizes, she even looks around, he's not there. Then she looks up to the sky and she laughs and she smiles. It's like, so, yeah, I don't know. I think with like all the other stuff, especially with the taxi cab bit, at the end of the day, I don't even think it matters if it's if, if he has the powers or not. I mean, I don't even think that they're going for that. I think that whole thing's just a red herring, man. It's like, yeah, we'll put this in there and then it'll give them something to think about. But if you're not going to commit to something, then don't don't bother, you know? To me, it just gets in the way. Yeah. And I'm not really sure how to take it. The first time I saw it, I left thinking, okay, well, at least they're saying he did have the powers. That's something interesting. But they didn't really do anything with it. Mm -hmm. It feels kind of hollow when I look at it now. And it was... I think me desperately trying to have a good takeaway from this movie when, for the most part, I didn't really enjoy it. It was just too intense about characters that are, for the most part, kind of vapid and empty or just so concerned with themselves Mm -hmm. with tying in with all the sort of gimmicky things with the the camera, the super, super close-ups with the handheld cams, which are not steady. I didn't like the spinning around the characters all the time. I got really tired of. And just the the cutting between stuff that felt a bit unnecessary, parts of the story that felt unnecessary. It just 
doesn't work for me. And it felt to me like the biggest thing was, does he actually have these powers or not? And for them to say, yes, he did the whole time. But then what, when, the, what about the taxi then? Yeah, all these other times where I go, oh, yeah, but now watching it a second time, I go, yeah, but now that doesn't make any sense. They should have just cut that from the film. Now, honestly, I, I, I think the movie would have been better if they just cut Emma Stone's part from the end and not have her look out the window. I have the window open, curtains billowing in the wind, done. And you know, then the I, argument would be, did does he, he have, have the powers? powers? Fly? Yeah, exactly. Then it would be, then it would be more interesting because you could argue for both. But this is kind of saying definitively, yeah. I mean, she would not smile like, oh, my dad just jumped out the window. He's dead. Unless you take it away that maybe she's looking up at the sky and she sees some birds flying and she's like, oh, that's cute. Maybe she thinks her dad's left the room to go somewhere, you know, go and get a, a drink from the vending machine. And she just sees something funny outside. But I don't think that's what the film's trying to do. No. And I toyed with the idea that maybe she was happy that he went out on a high note. But I don't think that the way she looks around, I don't think fits that either. Especially the way she looks down. Because she's like, she's obviously thinking, dad's dead. Where is he? He's not there. Let's look up. Oh, he's in the sky. Ha ha. Look at that. That's That's incredible. What do you think about my point earlier, though, that... I don't think this works without it being Keaton and his relationship to being in superhero movies before and uh, uh, and the sort of fan love. Because I, when I talked to people around the time that it came out, mm-hmm. that seemed to be all they were talking about. I mean, yeah, it's a good choice of cast. I think he's good. He's good in the role. And it, it's kind of, and it is like almost his life. There's sort of a well. semi-autobiographical yeah. element to it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's a good, it's a good thing. And it's like, yeah, it's like this whole idea of doing this job because you want to be loved and there's a lot of self-loathing and narcissism and this thing of like you you're only measured in dollars basically like how much money you can make at the box office and things like that and Keaton's trying to be a serious actor you know and he's got this play thing and it's like but at the end it's like well Reagan is doing that so, yeah, sorry. So it's like he's, he's got that thing and he's like, he's trying to get away from that and do something serious. But is he trying to, is he? Or is, is this just another narcissistic thing where he's like, I've got to be the serious actor now that I'm older. I, I don't want to go back to that, that rubbish kind of superhero nonsense. And I think that that's something that could definitely be argued because different characters feel differently about it. Jake clearly is supporting the idea and trying desperately <laughs> as best he can to make sure that there's money and that it does continue. But Regan's family is very not supportive. Sam is not supportive. The ex is not supportive. Until it's going well. Yeah. And then the ex comes in and says, it's actually going very well. This is good. Mm -hmm. And you see Sam start to come around and go, oh, well, that video of you in your underwear, it seems terrible, but it's actually power. Like, we can make this happen. And she's still, you know, even into the hospital, starting that Twitter account. So... Right. It could be the type of thing where he saw the vision and once it actually succeeded, then other people kind of came on board. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a sort of narcissism to have a pet project and to try to bring yourself back into the spotlight. It, yeah, I think there's a lot to be argued there, but I'm just not sure that I'm <laughs> in the mindset to want to argue all those things. I just feel like, to me, it's a lot of that other stuff that seems to get in the way of that and that perhaps... The conversations we should be having are more about the characters and their interactions, but a lot of them don't feel that deep. And I think if we had just followed Regan and focused much more just on him, maybe 
we would be having more of that kind of discussion. Gaps filled and more gaps created.